Well, good morning to you. Wasn't the rain great yesterday? Isn't it fun to actually be rained on? And, and more than just flatter, my wife tells me, you got to change the wipers on your car because every time the wiper went away, it went across my windshield. And, and it was just, we were trying to have a conversation, but we couldn't because it change the wipers. <laughs> and so I, I did. And, you know, I didn't drive after I put it on, and, and now it misses a big old chunk of my window. <laughs> I'm not sure what's better. Now a wiper to go, brrr, brrr, or to have one where I can't see. I don't know what works better, but it's really good to have rain. Rhonda, it is great to have you back. If you don't know, she went to China for, um, she went to China for a month to literally go teach English, and, and she had life-changing experience. Um, so, um, if, <laughs> go ahead, ask her. And, um, Rich, it's great to see you, one-armed bandit that you are. We'll call you Bone Crusher again someday soon, right? Um, men, it was great to spend time with you on Saturday. Mark, you did a good job with your lesson. He's gone, so I can talk about him. Um, he really did. He did a good job watching the men, asking the men what has God done in our life in the last month, and, and having all the men share an answer to prayer, whether it was something recently or whether it's been a an answer to prayer that God has done over the last couple of years in their life that's really encouraging. Um, and so some good things are happening in our lives. And so I want you to join the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. We've been looking at prayers of the church in Acts. And it's, it's our hope that as we get connected to the prayers of people in the book of Acts, that we as a church, we as a church start to emulate the things that they did and how they prayed and what they prayed for. And this morning, my prayer is that you would be an answer to somebody else's prayer. And you're going to see that Peter was an answer to Cornelius' prayer. But let me, an outsider. His customs were strange as an outsider. His thinking was different. His clothes, they were a little unique. and, And the rules that he lived by made... He liked those on the inside, but he could never fit in. He admired those who were on the inside, but he could only do it from a distance because the inside people rejected the outsider. He wanted to be an insider, but but the insiders had rules that he wasn't quite ready to obey. He was an insider. His customs were comfortable. His thinking, oh, the insider's thinking is always correct. His clothes, well, they were refined. They were what everybody else was wearing. His rules, his rules, uh, he had accepted them. He hated those. He hated those on the outside. Those on the outside were horrible people. He loathed those on the outside, and he completely rejected them. He never even once thought never even once thought of inviting an outsider to be part of the inside group. The insider, the outsider. And then one day, the insider has to cross the line. Not the outsider to the inside, but the insider has to cross the line, has to cross the threshold, has to break the rule, has to break the law. And the insider, his heart, his mind, the insider, the person who who had the rules, the regulations, the law, he, he, had to change one. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, um, the book of Acts is, is a great, this chapter is probably, actually this chapter and chapter 11 and chapter 15 all, re, 
all around the same incident. It's probably one of the most important chapters in the New Testament about the transition of the church. Because after this chapter, after what takes place in chapter 10, the church's trajectory changes. And, and so, you, sure, you have a, you have a little, little couple of people doing some things, maybe some insiders talking to some people on the outside, but you don't have the trajectory of the church moving and reaching those people who are far away, those people who are lost. Instead, you have the insider, more inside trajectory. Acts chapter 10. I'll begin chapter, verse 1. It's on your handouts, and, and, and if you follow along, make sure if you want to write notes in your Bible, feel free to do that. You want to circle some things. I'm going to try to circle some things up here eventually, and we'll see where we go. Um, it starts like this. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. In other words, he was not a Jew. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor. He prayed regularly to God. A clock, time of prayer, by the way. He had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius started, stared at him, the angel with terror, like other people who have encountered angels do. What is it, sir? The angel asked, he asked the angel, and the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, who on Cornelius called two of his household servants, and a devout soldier. One of his personal attendants. Think about this. See, Cornelius was, he was a good man. Cornelius was a really good man. Luke takes pains in, in showing us how good Cornelius was. And so I want us to look at, there are at least eight different things that show how good Cornelius was. And so if you circle something, circle the word devout right there. Circle the word devout. We see that he was a devout man. Cornelius is not a Jew. He's not, he, he's not part of Jerusalem, wasn't there. He was part of the Italian regiment. He's probably from Rome somewhere. He, he's, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He had a deep religious feeling, and he was committed. So he had deep religious convictions, and he was committed to the cause. It was not a hunch for him. It was not an emotional appeal for him. He had a deep set conviction in his heart. He had given his life to his religious practice. Number two, he was his family, everyone in his household. Not only was he devoted, Devoted, but other people in his household were also devoted to this God that, that Cornelius worshipped. He was a God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. And so his wife, his kids, probably his servants, they were all God-fearing people. They were devout. Number three, he was a God-fearing man. For a second, he had reverence for God, not the small G God of Rome, but the big God, Theos, of, of, of Jerusalem. He was a God-fearing man. He had respect for God. He was filled with awe about God. A God-fearing Gentile was a person who was nearly converted to Jerusalem. Nearly converted to Judaism, I'm sorry. He just wasn't willing to get circumcised. I don't blame him. 
right? He, he, was a God, he was a guy who, who believed that God had created the world. He believed the God of the Old Testament, as we would call him. He just wasn't willing to become a proselyte. In other words, he wasn't willing to become Jewish. He believed in Isaac and Jacob, but he wasn't willing to become an Israelite, a Jew, because of it. Watch this. Well, this is what God-fearing means. And, and there's one guy named William D. Eisenhower. He wrote an article in Christianity Today called Fearing God. Listen to a quote from him. He says, unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset that threat. How different it is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. Amen? If we understand that, it gives us great peace. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted, for in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce God to the world's equal. This is not about, okay, 50-50 God world. This is not it. Watch this. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God possesses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions so that he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up. He sits in judgment of my sin, but he forgives me nevertheless. The Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. Cornelius was a God-fearing man. Number three. Number four. He gave generously to those in need. So circle the word generously. He gave generously. And so, so Cornelius just wasn't a God-fearer. He, he acted. He gave of his resources. Generosity was a truth, a hallmark in Judaism. So look, generosity is a high value to the Jews. God gave generously. He created the world, and, he, and he, he made the garden. And then he told Adam and Eve, go, take care of the garden. In other words, I've made this world for you to take care of and to watch over that. God is a very generous God. He's blessed Abraham so that Abraham could be a blessing. God is, is amazing in his generosity. He gave his only son. He's forgiven us of our sins. God is huge in his generosity. Generosity is looked highly upon in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 19 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and will repay him for his deeds. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Here's Cornelius. Here's, here's a guy who doesn't belong within the Jewish religious system, and he's giving generously to the poor. And it says, and the Lord, and listen to how the angel answers in a minute. Generosity is an act of worship. Have you ever thought about that? Your generosity towards the poor, your generosity towards God, is an act of worship. Sometimes we take the offering, and it's just something that a church does. No, the church has multiple ways for us to connect with God. We, we do it through prayer. We do it through songs. We do it with sermon. And yes, we do it through faithfully being able to generously give back to God because generosity is an act of worship. Psalm 54, 6. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. Not a required offering, but with a free will offering. Offering over and above whatever God would ask. It's, it's my free will. I'll God to you. With this generous offering, I will worship 
and I will sacrifice you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord. And we see that Cornelius was a generous man. Number five, he prayed to God regularly. Here's a guy who wasn't willing to become a proselyte, yet he's praying to God regularly. What's it say? He gave generously to the poor, and he prayed regularly to God. He was praying at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a natural time to pray, a call to pray. And so he was praying to God. He was praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wasn't praying to Neptune, to, to Zeus, or to send them for help. He was praying to God, and he was praying regularly. Number six, he was visited by an angel. He was visited, look at what it says, and, the, and he saw, here he saw, an angel of God coming toward him. If you underline that, note this, because, because all of a sudden, Cornelius becomes one of a handful of people who have this encounter with God. We know that there are other ancient patriarchs that had encounters with God, and we see that Abraham, he connected with God through an angel, right? We, we know that Jacob did, we know that Moses did, and we know that Joshua. Those are big-name people in the Old Testament. They encountered and now, in the New Testament, the book that Luke was writing, Luke wrote the first gospel, the, the gospel of Luke. He wrote that, and then he wrote the book of Acts. And so, in his first book, the gospel of Luke, Luke says that there were some other people, Mary and Joseph and Zacharias. Each one of them saw an angel. And so, what kind of crowd does this put Cornelius in? It puts him in an amazing elite crowd of people who have an interaction with the angels. Number seven, he was righteous. If you go down the passage a little bit to verse 22, we see that his, his personal bodyguard, his, his personal assistant, the one who knows him well, he describes him as righteous. It says, we have come from Cornelius the centurion, and he is a righteous man. In other words, he lives the talk. He, he lives as a righteous man. He lives with great moral standards. He, he doesn't cheat the system. He's not out abusing people. He is a righteous man. Number eight, he had a great reputation with the Jewish people. He's a righteous man who is respected by all the Jewish people. Here's Cornelius. Man, he's a man who prays regularly. He's a man who gives generously. He's, he's a righteous man. He, he um, is a devout man. He, he loves God. Cornelius is uh, an amazing father. Let me see if I can do a quick application. One of two direct applications this morning. Look at that statement. How do the people you work with and who know you, how would they describe you? How do the people who work with you and know you, how do they describe you? Cornelius was described as a righteous man by his personal assistant. Described as a man of prayer. Described as a man who, who walked with God. If I were to interview someone close to you, what would they say about you? What would they say about your character? What would they say about how you walk, the things that you say, the things that you do? You know, if you think that they would say, oh, they're Jesus, or do you think that they would say, boy, they love Netflix. They're just on top of the video games. That's what they would do. They play video games all the time. Or, or, or this person's really known for, you know, honestly, Paul, they've got a bad mouth. They don't speak well. They gossip all the time. What would somebody say who really knows you well? Who knows you behind the curtain? You know, if you have any challenges with that, maybe it's time to think about 
how do you, what is your reputation with those who are close? What is your reputation with those? Let's get back to the passage because Cornelius was, he was a good man, right? You saw that, that detail. He was a really good man. And then, then you need to ask the question now, is Luke spending so much time describing how good Cornelius is? Well, what, is, what, is the, what is the deal with that? Why is he making that point? Why is he telling us how good Cornelius is? Uh, he could have simply gone from the healing of Tabitha into going meeting Cornelius and, and seeing Cornelius come to faith. There, there has to be a connection into why eight different, eight different adjectives describe this guy. Or seven plus his family. What is, what is the truth? What, what, what is hidden in here? Well, I think if you go to Acts chapter 9, at the end of Acts chapter 9, two incredible things happen. One is Peter is walking, and there's a paralyzed man, and Peter prays over the paralyzed man, and the paralyzed man begins to walk. Pretty impressive. Suddenly, he's staying in Joppa, and in a gal named Tabitha, she gets sick and she dies. And then they hear that Peter is also in Joppa. And so they send for Peter. And they say, Peter, will you come pray for her? And when Peter gets there, she is dead. And people are mourning. And Peter gets in the room. And he says, Tabitha, get up. Echoing the very same thing Jesus. He saw Jesus do to a young boy. But Tabitha, get up. And Tabitha comes back from the dead. Pretty impressive. He's about ready to equate the faith of Cornelius, the Gentile coming to faith as, as equal to the paralyzed man walking to the dead person coming back to life. They all three work together. In fact, here I did a little parallel so you can see the, the similarities here. Tabitha in chapter 9, verses 36 through 42. Tabitha did good. She helped the poor. She was loved by others. She sent for Peter. Peter prays for her, and she comes back from the dead. The same things. Watch this. Tabitha did good. Cornelius was good. Tabitha helped the poor. Cornelius helped the poor. Loved by others. Loved by others. Sent for Peter. Sent for Peter. Peter prays, and she comes back from the dead. Peter joins. He doesn't really quite pray. He says, why did you send me here? And they receive the Spirit, and he is, if you will, he is raised from the dead. Amen? Okay, last week, last week, if you're new here, um, I gave the church permission to say amen. And um, so right now you've been very quiet. I know it's rainy outside, but let's make some noise. Is it, is, is it not as important that Cornelius, Cornelius accepts Jesus as Tabitha comes from the dead? Amen on that. You see, you see how important this is? In fact, if you will, text-wise, the amount of ink that Luke put on this passage and what happened to Cornelius is significantly greater than that of Tabitha. What, maybe two paragraphs for Tabitha. Two chapters. Chapter, all of chapter 10, part of chapter 11, 15, where there's contention of what's going to happen when the Gentiles are now coming to faith. And it is because of what happened in chapter 10 that the council says, well, if the Holy Spirit came upon them, like, we can't stop them. No, we're not going to put any things on them. And so, it, 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 structurally, it is significant in the fact that Cornelius is raised from the dead spiritually. See, Cornelius was a good man. Thank you. He was a really good man. Peter was spiritually stuck, and he needed to get unstuck. Peter, Jesus was closing down his ministry. He had risen from the dead. He, he was going to give the great commission to the disciples. And I think in Peter's mind... He thought, okay, it was about the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. 
And Jesus says to this, he says, All authority in heaven and earth, Matthew 28, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Peter thinks, okay, I'm going to tell all the Jews about Jesus. They're going to see that their Messiah came. And he is stuck thinking that the Messiah has come only for the Jews. Imagine thinking, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to take the message. And so he does. He gets a paralyzed man, Jewish. He gets a Tabitha, a believer, a Jewish believer. And he struggles just simply to enter into the doorway of a Gentile. And you can see that Peter was stuck. And so God has to really unstick Peter. And so he does this. He gives him a vision, a visitor, and a vaulty face moment. I love that word. I found it looking for a V word, okay? Got visitor and vision. What can I do for V? And vaulty face. I was telling the worship team about this word. It means a, a, a moment that is an abrupt and complete reversal of attitude, opinion, and passion. I think we need some vaulty face moments in our life where, where, where we have a reversal. We're going one way, and God wants to change, smack us upside the head and say, you've got to change. And, and he does so. Yes, he does so in multiple ways. Watch this. About noon the following day. Now we're in verse 9. About noon the following day. So, so Cornelius had the vision. Cornelius says, hey, guys, can you go get this Peter? I don't know who he is. All I know is he's staying with Simon the Tanner. I don't know anything about that. Okay, they, they go off. It takes them about a day to get there. Peter is going to be praying on the roof of a house. And he came, and Peter became hungry. And he wanted something to eat. And while he was, while the meal was being prepared, look at all the details that are there. He's hungry, and while the meal is being prepared, he fell into a trance. And I asked Aaron if he could get me a sheet with some live Aaron. Aaron wasn't able to get me a sheet with live animals. Because wouldn't that be the coolest thing to have some snakes in here and to have some alligators running around in the church, a sheet coming down? You're going, hey, that's a little bit crazy of of an illustration, right? And so a large sheet came down to the earth by its four corners, and it contained all the four-footed animals as well as the reptiles and the birds. And then a voice Listen to the courage that, that Peter has. So you have this vision, and, and God is speaking to you. Listen to what Peter is going to say. The voice says, get up and kill. Eat. Surely not, Lord. <laughs> no. He's telling God, no. I, I, I have never eaten. God says, okay, it's time to eat. You're hungry. Go. And Peter says, no. And, and so, so then the voice says, a second time, Peter, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. Okay? Peter, you have a habit of, of sometimes being hard-headed. Sometimes things don't quite get to Peter as, as ed- readily as they get to other people. And so it happened three times, and then immediately the sheet was taken back. Peter, Peter, Peter. Peter, God says to Peter along the shore, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you Peter, 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 you're going to deny me three times. Peter, Peter, Peter. Peter was a challenge. Peter wasn't the guy you could tell something to once and, and he would be okay with it. You had to repeat it multiple times for Peter to understand. But once Peter understands, he really connects well. Sometimes we're like that. 
Sometimes we hear a message and, and we continue saying, no, God, I don't want to do it. And God, in his grace and his compassion, doesn't squash us like a bug. He repeats the message to us. And then he repeats the message to us. And hopefully, by the third time, our heart is softened in which we get to do the At the end of the sermon, I'm going to give you something very simple to do. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment to do it. But here in the passage, go back to Acts. Peter goes into Cornelius' house. This is a huge thing. So the men come, and it takes another day to get back to Cornelius' house. And now you have this Jew who, who heard the word from God, not once, not twice, but three times, and he's going to go into, for the first time, probably in his life, he's going to go into a Gentile's house. Something that he would never, ever do unless the word of God told him to do. And while talking with him, Peter went inside the gathering of three days ago, saw Tabitha come from the dead, who just saw a paralyzed man. He, he steps off into Cornelius' house, and he says, um, you are well aware that it is against the law of a, for a Jew to associate or to visit a Gentile. Peter was on the inside. Gentiles were on the outside. Peter was here. Gentiles over there. We can't even associate with them as Peter has translated the text, as Peter has seen. It is against the law, and we definitely, definitely are not allowed to step down here and then not allowed to talk to the Gentiles. Wow, can you get the room and all of a sudden... But the next verse is really funny. Showing me that I am not to call anyone... See, Peter was great. He took the, he took the sheet, and he understood that God wasn't talking about animals. Anyone, not anything, unpure and clean... Peter was smart enough to be able to translate that and go, go, God must not be talking about animals. I get it. He's talking about people. Peter picks up the lesson and he learns. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. And then look at that question. But I don't know why I'm here. Can you please tell me what I'm doing here? Why? Why? Why am I here? Isn't that a great question? God, what have you done? Why am I here? What am I? Okay, I'm here, God. Now, why do you want me? And so what happens? He's going, hey, Peter, this is what happened. I, I was praying about noon, and an angel came, and it said, my generosity and prayers have been answered, and then I'm supposed to send for you. That's all I know. And then you're going to explain to me what I need to know. And then, Peter, I don't know if you've read the text. If, if you, if you want to read the text, this is great. In Peter's sermon, Peter shares the gospel. On Wednesday night Bible study, we often mention the word gospel. We also often talk about it. And then I always quiz the people, what does the word gospel, not what does the word gospel, but what is the gospel? You know, you hear it a lot. Can you share the gospel? Can you share the good news? Do you know what it means when you say Peter shares the gospel? Let me show you what it is inside of this passage. And some of my Wednesday night people are going, here it is. I know the answer to this question, right? I put it in simple God sent four simple words so that you could understand as you take notes. First, God sent. God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his only begotten son. God sent to the people of Israel, Peter says, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. God sent his son. God anointed 
God just didn't send his son, but God anointed his son, and he's looking back maybe to the baptism of Jesus. God anointed Jesus Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. I have seen the dead come back to life. I've seen thousands of people fed. I saw, I saw blind men. I saw lame men. I saw deaf men. I, I, I've seen it all. God anointed Jesus Christ. God anointed Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit and with power, something that they are going to see in a matter of moments that's going to change literally the world. Not only did God sin, not only did God anoint, but then Jesus died. He gets to the crux of it. He goes, they killed him by hanging him on a cross. God sent one. They didn't like. They, they challenged the system, and the system put him to death. And so they nailed Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus died. Very important that you understand that, that Peter knows that he died. He just didn't faint. He just didn't swoon. He just didn't kind of pass out on the cross and, and then come back out a couple of days later, all healed, all revived, all better. He died on the cross. And then, being buried in a tomb, Peter says, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. God did it. God raised him from the dead on the third day. There's no hole in the ground that could hold back our Savior. There's no tomb that, that's going to entomb our Savior. There's no, there's no grave that is going to keep Jesus buried. Jesus Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ was risen again. And he is risen. And one day, one day, as we took into communion, one day he's going to come back for us. And until then, we need to live in the hope that, that God loves us so much that he died for us. And watch this, one more thing. If you believe in him, you can be forgiven. And all the prophets testified about him, that everyone, this coming from Peter, to Cornelius the Gentile, after having seen the vision, Peter understands that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Amazing. Peter says you can receive forgiveness of sins by believing in Jesus. You, your sins... Paul, the apostle, writes that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. No, not one. All of us, all of us have sins in our life. And all of us can have those forgiven if we believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about the same kind of belief as you would the tooth fairy clause or anything. I'm talking about a life-changing, life-giving belief that says, I accept it with all of my mind, all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. When you truly believe and you're willing to then talk to people who are on the outside. You're willing to be uncomfortable for the glory and for the presence of God. When it's more than just, just a, a, a casual word or a Sunday morning thing. When it is who you are. When people ask about you and your friends tell about you, they say, he, she believes in Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what we're talking about. And your sins will be forgiven. While Peter was still speaking, watch this, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit, all who heard the message, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished. They, they were, what is going on here? The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. And all of a sudden, to the astonishment, the Jews are going, wait a minute. We were in the upper room when the same thing happened, when all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came upon us and we understood 
that Jesus Christ, yes, it's happening to them. Pretty amazing, huh? The, the insider, the one on the inside, had to go through the change. The one on the outside wanted the, to have a relationship with the God of the person on the inside, but the person on the inside would God magnificently orchestrating a scenario so that the person on the inside would say, come in, have a relationship with Jesus. I know the answer you're looking for. Here is the answer. For they heard them. Why were they astonished? Speaking in tongues, and they heard them praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of being baptized, of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit as we have. They have. Isn't that great? How Peter, Peter was reluctant because Cornelius was on the outside and he wanted a connection with God and, and he was generous and he was good and, 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 and then Peter heard the voice and the good news with the person on the outside so that they can become on the inside. See, I really want you I really want you, here we go, the bottom line aspect of the sermon. I want you to be an answer to someone's prayer. I really want you to be an answer to prayer. And so, and so the question comes, okay, what can I do specifically? So I'm going to make this as low-hanging fruit for the church as possible. And so I thought of this illustration, and imagine one day, imagine one day a little puppy, you're walking down the road, and as you're walking down the road, you're just having minding your business, and the cutest little puppy that you've ever seen towards you. And that cute little bushes has these big sappy eyes, and it looks hungry, it's shivering a little, it's cold. And you look around, and there's no other puppies, there's no other dogs, there's nobody else. And what do you do? Do you say, oh, that's a good little puppy, and you keep walking by? Or do you actually stop, and you pick it up, and you go, oh, little puppy, little puppy, you need a home. And maybe, maybe your home, you can't find a home for it. Maybe you, you can't bring it in your house. But truly, you will take care of that puppy, right? And truly, you will find a home for that puppy, correct? Okay, what if you're not a dog person? What if you're a cat person? And I don't know how you can be a Christian and a cat person, but maybe, <laughs> maybe, you're, maybe you're a cat person anyway. And, 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 so, and so you're walking along. It's not the same path because... The dogs are on that path. This is another road. You're walking along, and you see the cutest little kitten. It's, it's a fluffy little furball. It's, it's just so, its eyes are so big, and it's going, meow. And, and it's just looking at you, feed me. And it's shivering just a little bit, and it's trying to play a little bit, but it, it's starving. It's cold. It's lonely. And you look at that cat, and then, meow, take me home. And you go, nah, I'm just going to let the cat, let the wolves have the cat. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to let the animals, you know, nature be nature. Go ahead, do it. What do you do? And at least if you can't bring it into your house, you at least say, I'm going to find a home for that cat. Is that not what we would do? That's a, feed it to your dog, right? That's what you're going to do. Here, kitty, kitty. Ah, um, no. Um, imagine, let's make this even worse. You're walking down the street and you see a baby carrier. No one else around, and you see a little baby inside the baby carrier. And inside the baby carrier, there's this cutest little kid, a couple of months old, there, tucked in. Obviously, someone cared for it, but they left it. And parents aren't around. No one's around to help. Do you simply walk by the baby and say, you know what? 
and I have a good day, baby. And I'm going to leave you because I don't say anything. I'm just going to ignore. I'm going to pretend to be in my own world. Or do you say, little baby, you need a home. I'm going to take you, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to help you find a home. I'm going to help you get some food. I'm going to help you get cared for. And, and what do you do? You take care. Are you so heartless that you don't take care of a little puppy, little kitten, or little baby? I don't think so. And so this year we have a goal in the church to have one new family join the church every month. And what I'm going to ask each of you to do is I'm going to ask you to make a commitment to adopt a family. One family this year. You and your family. family. Because imagine this. Imagine this. There's a baby Christian that comes into the church. A baby Christian doesn't know anything about God. Wants to have a relationship with God. They're on the outside. You're on the inside. And that baby Christian comes to church, sits in the pew, sings the songs. And you casually just walk by, too busy caring about all your needs and, and what's going to happen in the afternoon, that, that you ignore that baby Christian. Think of it as the, and the little baby leaves the church having shaken a hand, but having had no relationships. And it goes back out into the world, and the world sucks up the very seed that was planted. Imagine that. What are you going to do? My challenge for us and I want to see, I'm going to ask you to make a commitment to in a moment, is for every family to adopt a family that comes to church. And your family, sometime in the year, says, I'm going to take the effort to adopt one new family. It's a guest that comes to the church, and, and the guest comes, and you make a special effort. You know that this month, it's, it's February, I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to adopt. That means that you, you get to know their name. That means that you maybe get a contact information. That means that you say hi to them in a purposeful, intentional way. How dare us care more for kittens and cats and baby eternity in people's lives. If we would be willing to, to take care of a puppy, we'd be willing to take care of a kitten, we'd be willing to take care of a baby, but we're not willing to stretch ourselves and take care of a spiritual baby that comes to our church. Instead, we assume that somebody else is going to do that. That's shame on us. That's, that's really hard for us to understand and hear. But church, last year we had 200 guests come to church. Last year we had probably 200 spiritual babies or potential babies or, or people that could help us grow. And what did we do? We passed them by. Because we had better things to do on a Sunday afternoon, better things to do than to make a connection, make a contact, make something real. So to adopt a puppy to adopt a kitten, to adopt a baby. Really make it easy. I'm going, to ask you to, I'm going to ask you in a minute if you and your family will raise your hand to adopt a family. All you have to do is one family this year. That's it. Just one family. And if you know, like an adoption, let's say, let's say uh, if, if I saw a kitten, I would pick up the kitten, believe me, even though I don't particularly like cats. I would take a cat and I would say, little kitty, come home. And, and I would give them to my in-laws. <laughs> Because they're looking for cat. Because I know that cat at my house would get killed. We have coyotes in our neighborhood, and a cat wouldn't live for very long. And it would be good for me to have a cat, because little kitty would be little wolfie's food. And that wouldn't be good for the cat. But I would take the little kitten home, and I would try to find a home for it. What about you? Maybe this isn't a good month for you to adopt a family. But can you not at least find another family to adopt it? 
exactly like you would do a kitten or a cat? Or take it to a person in authority, take it to a leader in the church, and say, leader in the church, let me introduce you to this person. I don't have enough time. You can't say that to them in front. I don't have enough time to deal with you, but um, I don't have this month. I can't do it. But I'm going to adopt a family in church this year. You want to know how to specifically reach our goal? One family. All we need is one family a month to be adopted. Are you willing to make the pledge? Are you willing to adopt a family? If you can't find, if you can't do it this month, you find somebody who can. And at the end of the year, we celebrate the fact that 12 families have been adopted into our church because we care more about people than we do about cats and puppies. Notice I didn't say babies because that would have been bad. Oh, I know little babies. Aren't they so cute? Then they grow up to be teenagers. And you go, oh, okay, time to go. (laughs) Um, So, what I need from you is a commitment. So if you're willing to, I'm going to raise my hand because the stumps are going to do it. If you're willing to adopt a family, let's see you raise your hand. I need 12 families to do it. Do we have 12 families that are going to do it? I think so. Okay. You just made a pledge between you and God that you're going to spend time when someone comes to church. It's going to be your quest. You're going to think of them as either they're a cute little puppy or a cute little kitten. You're going to think, my quest is to see that that family gets adopted because we're tired of seeing little babies come, hear the word of God, and go out back into the world, and the seed gets sucked up and killed. Right? Let's, let's see a revival break forth. We're obedient to what God has called us to do. Let's be an answer to Cornelius' prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. For these men and women, Lord, who have who've just asked. And they said, Lord, they're willing to adopt a family. So, Lord, we just give you praise and honor and glory for the result of that. As these men and these women think through what it means, Lord, bring the right people at the right time. There are some people, Lord, I know that, that are cat people. So they need some cat people to come into church. So, Lord... May they be an answer to the prayer. They need some people that that are going to love them, care for them, and nurture them. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity in the hearts and the lives, not just of us, but in the Corneliuses that you're going to bring to us. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray.